the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Arthur Idala on AM 970. The answer. This is the Arthur Idala Power Hour with quintessential New Yorker attorney Arthur Idala, New York's go to lawyer. He's here to share his stories from in the courtroom and around the city with interviews from high profile guests and everyday folks calling in to talk about everything from politics, lifestyle, health and wellness, and more. And now your host, making the case for the city he loves, attorney Arthur Idala. Hi, everybody. It's Arthur Idala, and tonight we have a special edition of the Arthur Idala Power Hour. We have a special interview with Melissa DeRosa. She was the secretary to Governor Andrew Cuomo, and she has a new book out called What's Left Unsaid, My Life at the Center of Power, Politics, and Crisis. Take a listen. Before we get to hear from Melissa directly, let's hear what was said about her upon her resignation from that post. Overnight, Governor Andrew Cuomo's top aide resigning. According to investigators, Melissa DeRosa allegedly helped lead efforts to retaliate against one of the women who accused Cuomo of sexual harassment. Melissa should have resigned months ago and apologized uh, along with the other enablers. DeRosa has been a fixture in the Cuomo administration since 2013. She's mentioned dozens of times in the attorney general's report for allegedly trying to retaliate against one of the governor's 11 accusers. DeRosa has been blamed for normalizing workplace harassment and previously came under fire in February for the state's nursing home scandal. Her late night resignation statement does not mention Governor Cuomo by name. Quote, it has been the greatest honor of my life to serve the people of New York for the past 10 years. So, Melissa, welcome. Thank you for finding the time. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. As you know, I'm a trial attorney, and often in the courtroom, my job is I go first, and then I have to hear someone make statements like that, typically about my client thereafter, (laughs) and I don't get the opportunity to give a response. First and foremost, is this book a response to those people out there who, after your hard work for 10 years, didn't say the nicest things upon your resignation? You know, it's not. I mean, I decided I was going to write the book 24 hours after we were out of office because I said I was not going to let the first draft of history stand. And the first draft of history was written by reporters during the fog of COVID during those two years that was done mostly not through primary sources, people who weren't in the room, a lot of people with particular political and personal motivations. And I lived it. I was in the room. I was there. I was on the phone with Jared Kushner. I was on the phone with Donald Trump, with Bill de Blasio. I was making decisions. I was living through scandal and I know what happened and what the press was telling the public was not the truth so this was my effort to tell the public and I did this you know for the people of New York for my administration who I felt was so unfairly treated for my family and for myself because the truth still matters so you said 24 hours after resignation after your resignation or 72 hours later the governor's resignation after we were out of office 
So after the governor. So, so well, I resigned, and then 48 hours later, the governor resigned, and I aligned my resignation date with him. So I was actually there to turn out the lights on the last day with him, and it was 24 hours after that that I decided I was going to write the book. So as a human being, I have to ask you, what was it like to turn out the lights? I, you know, it's funny because people ask me what those last few days were like. And if I hadn't lived it, I'm not sure I would believe it. I mean, the hysteria and the just the lies that came out of that report and the way that the press and the extremist politicians treated the governor who gave himself to the state for 11 years, our staff, these hardworking public servants, it was just so disgusting. And because Andrew Cuomo is who he is, I mean, up until the last day, there was an incoming storm and we were at 633 3rd Avenue doing storm prep and managing an, in- an incoming storm. And we were literally working until the class struck 12 that night and to me it was about his commitment to the state and the people of new york my commitment to the state of the people of new york our entire team that despite what the press was doing to us to our families after all of this time we'd given to public service that you know no one was going anywhere until until the job was done so you use the word hysteria that you when you're using the word hysteria you're talking about people outside the administration but what was it like that last week or so inside the administration. I mean, you talked about the governor trying to stay on task with with managing a storm, but what was it like for Melissa DeRosa, who was, you know, you were the highest unelected government official in the state, correct? Correct. And the first woman to hold the position. It was surreal. I'm not really sure there's another word for it. It was surreal. Were you functioning? You know, I wasn't... Right after I resigned, I, you know, and right after the governor resigned, I kind of shut down. I talk about it in the book. My family was incredibly worried about me. My mental health was deteriorating. Were I, you sleeping? I, I hadn't slept in, in literally two years. I hadn't slept since COVID started. You know, since the since the phone call I received on March 1st, 2020 from Dr. Zucker telling us we had our first confirmed case of COVID until the day after we left the we left. So the that's the I ground. Z- that's the ground zero date. That's ground March zero first, 2020. March first, 2020. So, pardon me for being a lawyer and yeah, please p- parsing words. But when you say you didn't sleep, mm-hmm. as someone who is a New Yorker and lived through this as a constituent. What, what do you mean when you say, obviously you slept in two years. So what do you mean by that? I mean, not really. When I say I didn't sleep, I mean, I was working until 11 o'clock midnight every day and getting up at, you know, between 3.30 and 4.30 a.m. every morning. And it wasn't because I was setting an alarm. It's because you couldn't sleep. Were there things to do? There... <laughs> I mean, when I when I think back, and I, I write about this extensively in the book, but those early months of COVID, those early days, weeks, months of COVID, when we had no, I mean, people forget. And it's, it's almost like because of the trauma we all experienced, it's like a trauma response. We've all like sort of blocked out and distanced ourselves from what those days were. But those early days, we were erecting field hospitals. We were building drive-through testing sites because people couldn't get out of their cars because we didn't know how COVID was being passed from one to the next. Remember, we didn't know if it was on surfaces. We didn't know if it was an airborne disease. We didn't know how long it stayed in the air. We didn't know how long you had to breathe it in, how close you could be to another person. This is before we understood masks. It was that whole period of time and every day, you know, closed down the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Huge backlash from the Irish Catholic 
commu- you know, community. Andrew Cuomo had to step in and do that because Bill de Blasio didn't want to upset Do- Cardinal Dolan. I mean, and then you think about it and you're like, but then there were people saying, why didn't you close down the entire economy instantly? Why did you close down the economy at all? But during those early days, there was such little information and the tasks were so great and the consequences of the decisions we were making, literal life and death, there was no time for sleep. There just wasn't. It was every ventilator you track down, every piece of PPE we're able to get to the state of New York, every decision we make, every hospital we build is could be the difference between whether or not another grave is being dug. And there's no more weighty, you know, experience than that. And so no, there there was no time to sleep and there was very little sleep. And it wasn't just me. I mean it was our entire staff. All right folks, we're just warming up with Melissa DeRosa. Don't go anywhere, we'll be right back. Wish there was an easier way to navigate the world of real estate? If only there was a way to learn from the best. Well, now there is. Saturdays at 10 a.m., our very own Dottie Herman, Vice Chair of Douglas Elliman, gives you the inside track to what is hot in real estate. Stay one step ahead in today's seller's market as Dottie gives her tips on how to make it through the tricky waters of real estate. Doesn't matter if you're new to the game or a seasoned vet. You need to listen to Ion Real Estate. Dottie and her terrific team of experts will guide you as sellers and buyers to make sure you're getting the best value for your property. Whether you want to become a real estate agent or work within the business, there's no better person to learn from than the great Dottie Herman. She's a legend. She's the best, period. Tune in to Ion Real Estate, Saturdays at 10 a.m., here on AM 970, The Answer. That's I on Real Estate. Don't miss it. Saturdays at 10 a.m. here on AM 970, The Answer. Hi, it's Arthur Idala here to talk to you about Bay Ridge Honda, run by the fantastic Sabah family. The Sabah family that I have known since my dad walked in there in 1980 and bought a Honda Accord for my grandfather. My sister's gotten cars there. My brother-in-law has gotten cars there. And you know why? Because the Sabah family makes you feel like you're part of their family. Bay Ridge Honda has New Year's deals. You know, we all make New Year's resolutions. Quit smoking, get more sleep, drink less. How about a New Year's resolution of a new car? At Bay Ridge Honda, they have brand new 2024 Hondas under MSRP, and they're offering lease loyalty bonuses. Finance rates are available. No payments until March of 2024. Best prices around. They will offer you top dollar for your trade-in. So visit the Sabah family at Bay Ridge Honda, 4th Avenue and 88th Street in Brooklyn, New York, or online at BayRidgeHonda.com. 4th Avenue and 88th Street in Brooklyn, New York, or online at BayRidgeHonda.com. AM 970, The Answer. Is your husband or wife in a hospital or rehab center? Are people telling you that they are not eligible for Medicaid? The cost of a nursing home is $500 a day, $15,000 a month. Are you frightened about bankruptcy just to pay the medical and facility bills? Don't panic. Just call Connors and Sullivan, attorneys at law. These attorneys have been doing this for 40 years. They've helped hundreds of people just like you with the same thing that you could be going through. They'll tell you exactly what you're eligible for, and they'll also help you devise a plan to avoid such dire news as bankruptcy. Call Connors and Sullivan for a free initial consultation with a lawyer. That's 718 718- 
888-238-6500. With offices in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island, it's never too late. The time to act is now, so don't wait and call Connors & Sullivan today, 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And trust me, folks, after you speak with them, you'll be glad that you did. Listen to AM 970 The Answer on Alexa. Tune in, iHeart, or odyssey.com. Welcome back to the Author Idala Power Hour, a special edition with Melissa DeRosa. Let's hear what she has to tell us about interacting with the White House. You, you talk about it in the book, and, and you just mentioned the names Jared Kushner, Donald Trump, Bill de Blasio. Can we, can we just break that down a little bit? Let's start at the top. Let's yep. start with the White House. Yep. And your, what, what was Melissa's interactions with the White House in March of 2020? So, you know, the governor, Governor Cuomo and, and Donald Trump have known each other 100 years, right? They both grew from up... From New York. In, yeah, from New York. Queens, Exactly. Right. Queens, their fathers knew right each right other. Exactly. Yeah, they lived not that far from each other when they were growing not up. Not exactly on the same side of things, maybe. I mean, not, philosophically, not on the same side of right. things philosophically, but... You know, they've known each other a million years, and so they would speak directly to one another. And then Jared Kushner and I were sort of the points of contact between New York and the White House. So if the conversations weren't being had by the president and the governor, it was Jared and I. And how was how was it dealing with him? You know, it depended on the day. And I, I have to say, and I give him credit in the book, you know, Jared has gotten a really bad rap, and some of it's deserved. Some of it, I think, is undeserved. He, you know, I viewed as sort of the most rational person in a mosh pit of, you know, lunatics, honestly. Yeah, I actually just read his biography. Yeah. um, Or I think it's his autobiography. And, of course, in an autobiography... You're going to make yourself seem like the most yeah. rational person. But that is actually how he came on. I mean, he balanced not throwing the president under the bus too much, but he made it clear that there were times where... They disagreed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he, you know, he was... When I would reach out to him early and we needed... We were trying to chase down ventilators. We were trying to get PPE. I mean, he. it was clear to me that when, you know, the president would give him the green light, he was doing everything he could to be helpful. So, And then up a, until a point. You just said about the president giving the green light. Yeah. Was there any feeling that Melissa DeRosa got that President Trump, who, although he's a New Yorker as president, didn't seem to be the biggest friend of New York in some of his decisions, did you get any sense that he wasn't, that President Trump, did Melissa DeRosa get any sense that maybe Jared Kushner was not being given the green light by President Trump? You know, we had such a terrible history with Trump going into COVID, and people sort of forget this. They repealed SALT, state and local tax That's exactly what I was referring to as a constituent. Right, which, you know, they did, we believed, to punish New York, which in essence raised our property taxes here. Just before COVID hit, we had enacted um, the ability for non-documented people to get driver's licenses. When that happened, they enacted a rule at the federal level, Moving the state of New York from the Trusted Traveler Program, which expedites screening in federal airports. And we were one of 12 states in the country that had this law in the books, but yet we were the only one singled out. And so, you know, Trump had this chip on his shoulder vis-a-vis New York. I think that he resented the people of New York because it was his home state, but we so, you know, hugely rejected him electorally. And during COVID, there was this new element that was introduced into everything where Andrew Cuomo 
Cuomo was overnight, you know, this this world hero. And he was being compared to, people were saying he was the de facto commander in chief. He was the Winston Churchill of our time. You know, these press conferences we were giving every day were must-see TV internationally. Our ratings were higher than the president. Not that we cared, but he cared. And he became obsessed with this idea that the Democratic Party was going to remove Joe Biden from the ballot and replace him with Andrew Cuomo. And so- Is that, was that... Ever no, no, it's like fantasy land. I mean, it was never a conversation. But you do, you do write in the book about um, Andrew possibly being the Attorney General of the United States of America under a Biden administration. Well, that came much later. Okay. That was that was after Biden was elected. <clears throat> He talked. After he was elected? After Biden was elected, but before yeah. before he was sworn in? Yeah. Okay. In the, I think it was in the end of November, early December of 2020. Okay. So it was when he was, you know, president-elect Biden. Those convers- You know, that okay. notion was being kicked around. So let's go back to Trump being a little afraid of Andrew Cuomo. So, no, so everything that he did, he did through that lens. So he would overreact to, to like, the teeniest bit of criticism and, and go crazy. You know, at one point, and, and by the way, it wasn't just, I mean, his focus was Andrew Cuomo, but the entire time we were going through COVID, his eye was on November. He was waiting for the presidential election to come. And so every decision he was making was hyper-political. And I recount in the book this conversation I have with Jared in April of 2020. We had just started to, you know, bend the curve in New York. We finally were on good footing. <laughs> I haven't heard that since I read it in the I book, know, right? Bend the curve. That's, that's it. Did. Flatten it. Got to flatten the curve. And Trump was out, <clears throat> you know, I'm sure your listeners remember, liberate Michigan, liberate, you know, Ohio. He was on Twitter saying these things, time for the governors to reopen their economies, because he was concerned that if we didn't get the economies up and running, it was going to be detrimental to his reelection effort. And I picked up the phone and called Jared one day, and I said, you know, could you talk to the president about tamping it down a little bit? Because we just got this under control in New York. We were the global epicenter. Thousands of people dying every day. We finally have this in a good place. We don't need, you know, I didn't say this directly, but we don't need the president upending all of that progress. And he said to me on the phone, you know, our interests no longer align. You know, we're looking at polling in swing states and people have had it with the economy you're, being closed. In the book, you're, you're, you're quite upset about that. Yes. yes. <laughs> in the book, you're about with Jared. And, yeah, with Jared. Right. But it, you know, and but this was the way. It was throughout the entirety of the pandemic. You know, I tell another story in the book later on where they are threatening to send National Guard into New York and the next day, you know, I stave it off with this call with Jared and then the next day the governor and the president, you know, come to an agreement where if the governor stops criticizing Trump's COVID response, then he won't send federal troops into New York. So these these were the kinds of Politics. political landmines we were, you know, bobbing and weaving through. But then layer in a once in a century pandemic that's killing tens of thousands of people and so much unknown. And so it wasn't just the global health crisis we were dealing with and and the fact that there were all these life and death decisions. There was a layer of politics embedded in in our day-to-day life with Donald Trump in the White House that just complicated everything to a degree that I can't even articulate. You you know, you talked about landmines, right? And let's talk about what Donald Trump then seized upon and and many of the Cuomo administration critics seized upon and that had to do with the nursing homes. I actually have a clip that I want to play regarding that because I want to give you the opportunity to respond. I know that was a decision that was made without the hindsight, right? The 2020 hindsight that we have now. Let's just listen to that clip. 
The outrage is growing after this report from the New York Post. It claims that the Cuomo administration may have admitted to hiding nursing home data from federal authorities. It's a leaked phone call involving Governor Andrew Cuomo's top aide and Senate Democrats that has Cuomo at the center of the biggest scandal of his 10-year tenure as governor. The scathing phone call first reported by the New York Post includes quotes from Secretary to the Governor Melissa DeRosa, seemingly admitting the state hit nursing home death data from the Trump administration to avoid it being used against the Cuomo administration in a Department of Justice investigation. Andrew Cuomo and his team, they went on their daily briefings and they lied to the public. They lied to you and the press. They lied to the state legislature. And they likely lied to the Department of Justice. Okay, so Melissa, before you're going to respond to that, did that cause friction between you and the governor? Because they're basically like saying you you confessed and you weren't being transparent and obviously that was not a good look for the governor and I know you have an appropriate response but what about the personal nature between you and No, him? not for a second. He knew, I mean, the the New York Post which I can get into in a second, but he knew that what was being reported was not truthful. And the only thing he was worried about in that moment was my well-being and making sure that I was okay because for the first time in my life I was at the center of a firestorm in the press. So were you okay? Was I okay? No, I was not okay. So how did you react? Like physically, how did you react? I shut down. And I, I write about that in the book. After that happened, the next day, we were actually going down, we were flying down to the White House to meet with Biden. I had served on Biden's transition committee. I had worked for Obama and Biden a decade earlier. You know, I have a lot of friends that were working in the White House at the time. And we were excited. We were going to go down and catch up with old friends and talk about the future and how we were going to all come together to make things stronger in New York. We had a real partner in the White House for the first time in four years. And I talk about in the book, we're in the car on the way there. And I turned to the governor and I was like, I can't come with you. I, I can't. I'm so I'm so humiliated. I'm so horrified. What was his reaction? And he said, it's going to be okay. And I, you know, he's like, come with me. It's going to be okay. And I was like, I can't. And he got on the plane alone and I went back to the Capitol. And it and was what did you do when you went back to the Capitol? It was sort of my first, you know, re- like step down this really dark retreat into just, I just was a shell of a person. No, you know, I went back to my desk and I did my best I could to work, but I was a shell of a person from that point, you know, for a little while. I was, I was just not me. Okay, but let's talk a little bit about the substance because again, as a lawyer, please, I broke down what you said or what they claiming you said juxtaposed to what was really happening at the time. So tell, you know, so I'll, no, I, I apologize, but my role is to advocate, so I want to answer for you, but no, because <laughs> no, I can, but was, but you can provide the, the answer. The New York Post lied. The New York Post mm-hmm. got uh, got a leaked transcript of a conversation, and the reporter Bernadette Hogan lied. She put out into the press that I admitted to saying that we hid nurse- nursing home deaths to be able to evade the feds from investigating us, which was a lie. And what was incredible was, you know, three days later, the full transcript comes out for all the press to see. And Politico, as I write in the book, actually reviews it independently and says, there's nothing in here to further that Melissa Droza said they were hiding deaths from the federal officials. In fact, it's the opposite. She says, we cooperated fully. We gave them everything that they asked for. And so it was a lie. And what I didn't appreciate in the moment was that the New York Post putting that out there created this firestorm. And 
the rest of the reporters didn't have the transcript. So all they could do was go off of, you know, a historically sensationalized tabloid. And they all just repeated the same and, thing. But then what happens when they do get the transcript? So then when they, well, nothing. And that was the worst <laughs> part. You know, Politico writes this story saying, actually, that's not what she said at all. And as I also write in the book, you know, that was in February of 2021. In July of 2021, we get a letter from the feds, from Department of Justice, saying, we reviewed the numbers you submitted. They all look correct. And there's nothing here that warrants an investigation. But that was seven months too late for me. I mean, or five months, I guess it was. At that point, the die had been cast, the narrative had been built, and there was no, it was a tsunami. There was no way to undo the damage. So what I say is when my clients get arrested, they're on the cover of the paper, and when they find fully acquitted, it's on page 38 between the obituaries and the P.C. Richards ads. And that's exactly... Um, what happened here? You know, you said you know, you weren't functioning, but then you went back to your desk, right? You yeah. shut down, but you went back to your desk. So obviously, you're being a little hard on yourself. You were functioning, like in the book. I kind of thought you were going to go. You literally were going to go home and hide under the covers. Well, I did that at points too, but yeah. it was, you know, look, it was. I was like a machine back then. I would get up still at the same time, 4.35 a.m. at that point, because it was a year later, and I would get up and go to the office, and I was at my desk every day. I was there until late at night. I just wasn't the same person. I was much more vacant. My mental health was breaking down. I was the target of this giddy press tsunami, which first started with nursing homes and then morphed into the sexual harassment allegations. And it was unlike anything I ever wish on anyone. The bottom of the hour. Don't go away. We'll be right back with the rest of our interview with Melissa DeRosa. Wellness Wednesday with your favorite Fox News medical all-stars and other experts on how to keep you well. That's tonight at 7 on AM 970, The Answer. In an era where it's tough to know which news outlet to trust, at a time where it's difficult to find facts, not just opinion, there is an oasis in the news desert. It's the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis, the personification of the American dream, who built a multi-billion dollar business empire, talks with some of the nation's top newsmakers who are shaping the news cycle in the city, the country, and the world. Catch the Cats Roundtable every Sunday morning, starting at 8 on AM 970. The Answer. Hi, this is Judge Kamins, a partner at Idala Bertuna and Kamins, and where author Idala of the author Idala Power Hour works at his 24-7 day job. In 2014, I retired from the bench to join ABK, which is a full-service preeminent boutique firm that has been helping New Yorkers when legal problems arise. ABK is uniquely qualified to assist New Yorkers who have a wide range of legal problems, from personal injury claims and civil litigation to criminal defense and trusts and estates. I personally work on appellate matters, attorney disciplinary matters, and complex legal issues with a dedicated group of attorneys who provide a team approach to each case. There is no legal problem too big or small for this talented and hardworking legal team. So when you think of the Idala Power Hour, also keep in mind ABK, the power legal firm. 
Hi, it's Arthur Idala. It's a new year and time for new resolutions. I'm sure you've already made yours. Going to the gym, spending more time with family, you know how it goes. But is there someone in your life that should really make a resolution for an upgrade to a new career? Why not tell them about court reporting? It's a career with tremendous opportunity and flexibility. They can work in courts. They can work in schools. They can even work from home. They work as much or as little as they want, and their earning potential is fantastic. The National Court Reporters Association says there are 5,000 openings for court reporters and not enough reporters to fill them. The NCRA is offering this free program called A to Z where participants are introduced to stenography and court reporting and sessions are being hosted right here in New York City. Plaza College in Forest Hills, Queens is the only school in the city with a court reporting program. So sign up today by emailing info at plazacollege.edu. That's info at plaza, P-L-A-Z-A, college.edu. Listen to us online at am970theanswer.com. Tune in, iHeart, Alexa, or odyssey.com. We return now with lifetime New Yorker and legal analyst, attorney Arthur Idala and the Arthur Idala Power Hour. Welcome back to the Arthur Idala Power Hour with our special interview with Melissa DeRosa. Let's hear what she has to say about Andrew Cuomo writing a book about the pandemic. So at that time... You know, pardon me for not having the exact calendar in front of me, but, and you write about this in the book, the governor decides he's going to write a book. Mm-hmm. And your father, who I'm looking forward to speaking to you about in a moment, because <laughs> I've got to know him a little bit, I think he calls you or tells you like, no, 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 don't do that. That That's not, this is not the time to write a book. Tell the listeners, what was your position on the governor writing the book and the governor at, the, at your position at the time and maybe what your position is <laughs> no the governor you know at the end of june of 2020 after we finished our final <clears throat> press conferences so our last daily press conference was june 19th he called me on the phone with his daughters in the car and said you know what do you think we're talking about it should should i do a book it would be about the first half of the pandemic so people can learn the lessons going into the second half of the pandemic we had the first wave the country is now just getting into the first wave so i was going to the second wave and and I, as you as you mentioned, I talked to my dad about it, and he's like, "This is a spectacularly bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to have people on, you know, the far left and the far right coming at him. They're going to say this is arrogance. They're going to say this is premature." And you know, looking back. I think I knew that. And it was one of those moments as a staffer where if I could get in a time machine, I wish I would have spoken up and been much more forceful in that moment. Because, you know, so much of the damage that was done as a result of, you know, this perception that we, you know, he was he was too arrogant and taking a victory lap. And it did provide our political opponents with, you know, with weapons to come after him. And the pandemic wasn't over. And we, you know, it was one of those things where it was like if we had waited a year if he had waited a year you know it would have taken out this bullet that was in the chamber for everyone to use against him and it just and like for what at the end just yeah i wish if i could gotten in a time machine i would have said don't do it regarding the nursing homes yeah you know somebody who i know um who lost both of her in-laws was janice dean she's a woman on fox news and you know she's been attacking the governor from day one till now Again, now you have the um, luxury of so much more information, so much more knowledge, the hindsight. How should the nursing home 
situation have been handled? Did you handle it the right way? Did you do the best you could under the circumstances? But, but knowing the scientific facts now, if you could redo it, if you could go into that time machine, what would you have done differently? You know, I write about this in the <clears> book. <throat> I didn't make the decision on nursing homes. It was a decision that was made by the Department of Health in consultation with people on the COVID task force. And these were wartime decisions made in a moment in an effort to stop the hospital system from collapsing. And the thing that gets so lost because it got so emotional for good reason because it's a painful topic but then it was layered into politics and it was weaponized is that every state in the country that has looked at this every study comes back with the same conclusion which is that covid was brought into the nursing homes by staff and by visitors before anyone knew covid was here we now know covid was here as you know early as january of 2020 we didn't shut things down until march 20th of 2020 that was 2 months and 20 days where it was running rampant through this city and this state. And so when you actually look at the statistical analysis and you see the rate at which staff people were getting it and the rate at which people were getting it in the nursing homes, that was the direct correlation. It didn't have anything to do with the admissions policy. And the Assembly's impeachment report backed that up. And again, independent studies done around the country have shown it was staff that was brought in. So I actually think that the nursing home issue, again, was so weaponized and so politicized. And this was something, you know, that Trump and was driven a lot by the tabloids. In August of 2020, the president was furious that the governor had given a convention speech where he had criticized him. And it was date and and Jared Kushner and I, and I write this in the book, Jared calls me the next day, furious. The president was furious. He called off four major infrastructure projects they had promised to do with us as retaliation retribution for the governor's convention speech. And a couple of days later, they order this investigation into New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Michigan, four Democratic states. The nursing home admission policy was almost identical across 11 states, including Republican states. So if it was really about the policy, why were they not looking at all 11 states? So it's interesting, Melissa, because there's a couple of things you're very consistent in the book on. And one of them is you feel very strongly that your administration was very focused on policy and not politics. Mm -hmm. But you're critical of many around you who didn't agree with a lot of your decisions that those decisions were made on politics, not on policy. Do you feel that way right this moment? Well, you know, but meaning what? Like, our COVID decisions were purely based on policy with the best information we had in the moment with the best possible intentions. Juxtapose that with the President of the United States' Chief Advisor, Jared Kushner, on the phone with me saying, President's going to yell and scream about reopening the economy because we're looking at polling numbers in swing states. And that's what people want. And, you know, the governor delivers a speech at a Democratic National Convention, which is by definition a political speech, where he has four sentences that mention Trump. And the next day, Jared Kushner calls me and says, that's it. Gateway Tunnel, Second Avenue Subway, LaGuardia Air Train, dead. We're not negotiating with you anymore. And three days later, they used the Department of Justice to investigate us. I mean, I don't really, you know, when we talk about it, and this is one of the things that I think was so important to write the book and for the public to really understand, because these were things that were not in the press in real time. The level of politics, we were dealing with a weaponized justice department which obviously we weren't the only ones. I mean, we now have seen many people who we now know the Trump Justice Department. It's not 
I think, a coincidence that Jeff Clark, who was going after us on the nursing home investigation, is now under criminal indictment because he was who Trump was using to try to overturn the election results. So, I mean... We were doing the best we could with the information we had in real time, and at every turn, these things were being weaponized against us. When did there come a time where you took a deep breath and said, okay, this COVID thing is under control, and how much time did you have between that and when the sexual allegations popped up? Well, there's the the only time during that period where I felt like I took a deep breath and I felt like COVID was under control was the summer of 2020. We had driven positivity under 1%, and it stayed under 1% from July 1st, I think it was, until the middle of September. And our hospitalizations were down, and there was one to two to three people dying a day versus 800 people that were dying a day in the April prior. So it was actually during that brief hiatus over the summer in between the first and second wave. And then the second wave hits in September. The Jewish holidays happen. Kids go back to school. All of a sudden, there's a lot of gatherings. All of a sudden, there's these COVID spikes. We're dealing with hot spots. We're closing things down again. And then we're trying to roll the vaccine out. And we're trying to roll the vaccine out in January of December, January. I just want to stop you because you write about in the book. Yeah about closing things down, and you and the governor butt heads about that period of time, yeah. November. Was it, are you going to take uh, claim for saying you wanted to limit the amount of people in the house for Thanksgiving? Yeah. And no, it was my governor fault. Governor Cuomo pushed back and said, we, you know, we can't do that. And It was my fault. I write about this in the book. When, when we started to see the numbers spike, and I, I reflect on this, at, I now can see it so clearly. He saw it in real time. When I, wa- you know, everyone leaves and I walk into him and I'm like, just shut it all down. We need to shut it all down again. We know where this is going. And he looked at me and was sort of like, hey, come on. It's okay. I think you used the term. He said you were being too emotional. Yeah, he's like, you're being emotional. And he said, you know, you're letting your emotion drive you. We know more now than we did in, in March. And what I can see now clearly is that in that moment, watching those numbers rise, I was triggered. And it was like an emotional response. My heart started so to trigger The trigger is like PTSD. Exactly. Terms we it was use. like a okay. PTSD where all of a sudden my mind just went back to graves on Hearts Island. The only sounds you hear in the city are ambulance sounds piercing the silence. People having to be home again. And, it, you know, my heart beats faster and you start to sweat and it's like that you have an actual physical reaction to the emotional reaction what was your physical reaction it was that it was like literally like my heart you gain weight you lose weight my my weight oh my god during that period i was like i was like skin and bones i you know i lost i think i write in the book something like 12 pounds and i'm a thin person to begin with and it was you know i i write in the book there was one moment where when i saw the numbers going up it's like i I was clenching my, like I caught myself clenching my fist. It's sort of that flight or fright, you know, mentality. Flight or fright. fright. So um, before we move on to the whole sexual accusations, you are very vulnerable in the book and you talk about your personal life. You were married. Yep. During this period of time when we're all isolating, when the governor said, I'm getting tired of looking at my dog. Yeah. Who were you with? Well, at the beginning, I was staying with family. My family's in Albany, and so I would, like, you know, bounce around their houses and stay with them when I was up there until there was a scare that somebody in my office had COVID, and then I was afraid if, God forbid, I got COVID and brought it home to my family, I would never forgive myself. And back then, we had no idea, and people were dying, and my father's a diabetic, and we just didn't know. And so then I moved into a hotel temporarily by myself, isolating in this horrible hotel, the Renaissance in Albany. 
company where there's neon purple lights in the I'm, room. I know it. I know. <laughs> you like go home at night and I write in the book. I, I'm point, not like, saying it's terrible. <laughs> Listen to Rose saying that. It's actually a lovely <laughs> hotel, but yeah. during those days, no, I mean, uh, there, and there are these neon purple lights yeah, in the I'm room. Yeah, I'm aware of exactly what point and you speak. And I write in the book at one point, you know, that that was rock bottom, was returning to that room after, you know, 18-hour days to these neon purple lights, and I couldn't do my laundry, and I was afraid to let housekeeping in. Were you in communication with your husband at the time? I we mean, guys were we weren't. I mean, we okay. were, it was very limited. As I write in the book, you know, we had been separated January, February, March, and actually the opening scene of the book, which I always think back to, like, when did it all start? It was, for me, it was in January of 2020. We had dinner before we were going to be separated and not speak for three months, and we're sort of going through the ground rules of separation. And, you know, he says, we can't speak. This is what we agreed to. And I said, well, what if it's an emergency? And he said, well, if it's an emergency, then we'll speak. And I said, well, what defines an emergency? And he's like, I don't know, but we'll know it when it comes. And bam, COVID hits. But no. So I, I mean, I was completely isolated and alone. And at one point, we, I ended up moving into the mansion. Me, Larry Schwartz, Stephanie Benton, uh, the governor's cousin, Matt Cuomo, his kids. It turns into this hotel where the staff is staying. Members of the staff are staying. His family is staying. And, you know, all of a sudden I could do laundry and we could get food. And, you know, it's right around the corner from the Capitol. And so it was just this bizarre. I look back on that period of time. It was like up was down and down was up. And it was like, you know, I'm sure a lot better being with people than it being was, in the purple hotel. It was hotel. definitely better <clears throat> being, you know, I, I say in the book, Stephanie Benton, who was the governor's right hand for 15 Ever. years. Yeah. So she she looks like she's 25, she for the record. She looks like she's 25. I was very surprised yes. when I met her. And she sounds that way on the phone as yes. well. But she, you know, she and I became inseparable. She's one of my best friends in the whole world. And during that period of time, it was like we would come home, we would go back to the mansion and go to the pool house at the mansion. And, you know, the governor and his family would be inside and we would retreat out there and, like, have a glass of wine and unwind for 25 minutes, you know, kind of 11 wine, o'clock What kind of wine were you going with? I was a Sauvignon Blanc girl. She was a Chardonnay girl. But, okay, good But, yeah, know. so, you know, that was that was. So that sounds like a little a, a glass, glass half full. <laughs> Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our interview with Melissa DeRosa. Hi, it's Arthur Idala, and whether you're an owner of one machine or have a fleet of hundreds, ESCO Truck and Equipment can help with all your equipment needs. Whether it be purchase, lease, or rent, the right machine to improve your business. ESCO provides a full line of link belt excavators, light equipment from Dynapack, and Chicago pneumatic or handheld power tools from Steel. ESCO parts can stock an extensive inventory and retrieve parts quickly to minimize your downtime. If you break down in the field and need a part, ESCO certified technicians will come to you on site to get you back to work quickly. ESCO is there for you every step of the way with regular maintenance, inspections, service, and repair. Serving New York and New Jersey, call Joe Egenio at 718-504-2600. That's 718-504-2600. Or go online to escoequipment.com. That's E-S-S-C-O equipment.com. ESCO Truck and Equipment is a DeFazio company. Kevin McCullough is next on AM 970. The Answer. If you are what you say you are, a superstar, then have no fear, the camera's here. Welcome back, folks. One more segment left. Let's hear what Melissa DeRosa has to say about the Me Too movement. 
So let's talk about some more not-too-nice stuff. Um, Jody Cantor, New York Times. She's on one of the morning shows. And um, I have a clip here I want you to play, and then I want to hear what you have to say about it. Governor Cuomo appeared to be a champion of the Me Too movement and an ally of victims, and now he's allegedly creating victims in his wake. How do people reconcile that? I think that's one of the hardest to fathom things about this situation, because we've all heard a lot of these Me Too allegations over the years, but what is so distinct about these is that as this was exploding, as there was a global reckoning, the governor of New York was allegedly committing the same offenses. And there was a day two years ago, almost to the day, in August 2019, where on, on one day, the governor signed really important legislation protecting women. We're talking about landmark sexual harassment protections that women had sought for years. The next day he allegedly continued his pursuit of that state trooper Does that make you do you want to your head want to blow up right now when you hear that well look jody Cantor, the new york times in my view has been discredited on sexual harassment full stop <laughs> let me just say that much i mean as i detail in the book i had my own situation with the new york times reporter that carolyn ryan the, the people book. at the highest levels of the new york times were aware of and not only did they not blow the whistle they let him take the lead on being the me too reporter so let me just say that vis-a-vis the New York Times. They have no credibility on this topic as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, what I will say about the Me Too movement in general and about what happened with the governor and what happened during this moment of media, you know, sort of created scandal is that nobody actually stopped and said, what are these allegations? What are we even talking about? And that's part of why I really hope New Yorkers and people in general pick up the book, because I go through them in painstaking detail. One, two, three, you really, four. You really do. Like, if people really want to know, I mean, the book is great, and we're going to talk about how vulnerable you are in the book, about yourself, um, but you really do break it down in a lawyerly fashion, if I may say so myself. And to be blunt, you kind of call BS on, on each and every one of them. Well, and here's the thing. I'm not saying that, that 11 women are lying. Not by a long shot. But here's what I think people don't realize. Nine of the 11 allegations or these things are things that took place in the company of other people. Like, we're talking about a kiss on a cheek at the wedding. In front of know, her father. In fr- <laughs> yeah. We're talking about a hand on a waist for a photograph. We're talking about saying to someone, you look lovely today. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, you know, saying something in Italian that the woman says, I don't know what he said, I don't understand Italian, but I think he was talking about my looks. You know, we're talking about these things where it became, and let's speak about the New York Times, puts on the front page, the New York Times, which by the way broke the Harvey Weinstein scandal, which is a serious thing. Rape, you know, holding jobs and careers over women, whether or not you're going to sleep with Harvey Weinstein. And now, fast forward to 2021, you've got Andrew Cuomo on the front page of the New York Times with his hands on a woman's face at a wedding. Literally a wedding attended by reporters. So why? <clears throat> why, Melissa DeRosa? What what made the New York a Times... feeding frenzy. Uh, why? It, it's a good <clears throat> question, and I would love to I mean, to he was a hero... Not that long before that, during COVID, and now you're, you know, we're talking about months later, and now, so why is he all of a sudden, is it because during the course of your administration, you know, you talk about Machiavellian, you say, well, you know, I mean, the bottom line is, did Andrew Cuomo bully his way into his problems? 
I don't accept that. You know, and I've heard people like sort of posit that before. The New York Times, when they put that wedding woman on the front page, they were sending a message to every other media organization in the country that this is a front page offense. And suddenly, any trivial interaction is just given a number and thrown into a pile and given a number. Sixth offense, seventh complaint, eighth complaint, ninth complaint. It didn't matter how minimal they were. It didn't matter that one of them... Sorry for taking your thunder. One of them said, I, I, I didn't feel intimidated. I didn't feel like it was oh, her. Not I, one, three. three. Right, I apologize. Three. Three of the women said, so under Marissa oath, Rosa, I wasn't let, sexually harassed. But let, but let me rewind. Why? In other words, Andrew, I can, I can answer why they would do that to Donald Trump. I can answer why they could do that to several other people. Even a, a Democrat like Bill de Blasio, I could see them doing it. But why Andrew Cuomo? The man, you guys just won an Emmy Award, heroic attorney general of the state of, of the United States of America, possibly. He was in the Clinton administration. So why all of a sudden the New York Times decide we're going to take out Andrew Cuomo? I mean, that's an answer for the New York Times. But when I look back on that period, it was like hysteria and politics meeting the Me Too movement in this moment. And we were just off the rails. And as you said, Arthur, and I go through this in the book, I mean, there's 11 women in the report. Three of the women said under oath, I wasn't sexually harassed. I mean, I think the public would think very differently if they knew one of the allegations was a doctor on national television, which the entire country watched the press conference. She's dressed like a beekeeper in head-to-toe PPE with a face mask and a face shield doing the governor's COVID test. And he quips, you make that gown look good. That's one of the 11. I'm aware. You know, but, it, but people aren't, right? And so, and the reporters didn't do their job. None of the reporters, when that report came out, didn't say, whoa, 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 why is the doctor in this report? Why are three women who say under oath they weren't sexually harassed in the report? Why are you including people who don't even work for the state when this is supposed to be a sexual harassment report? And then subsequently, the one serious allegation, I will say, like, serious because it involves touching, which was the forcible touching of Brittany Camisso up, up in Albany. That claim falls apart once the sheriff brings the case and once the DA actually looks at the underlying evidence and he has to dismiss it because there's no way that it would have But Melissa DeRosa, he... As he dismisses it, he says, we believe her. He didn't say we believe her. Okay, correct me. What did he say? We find her credible? No, no, no. He said, we, and you know, Dan Abrams did a piece on this. I would love to find the exact quote, but Dan Abrams did the piece where Dan Abrams actually dissects his language. They said, we cannot meet our burden at trial. And they said, we take credible claims like this seriously. And so Dan Abrams actually broke down the language and was like, like this. Where it's not necessarily they're saying this was credible, they're saying credible claims like this like this, seriously. But, you know, look, it was politics. Mimi Roca in Westchester. I mean, the district attorney in Westchester. I am investigating this matter in Westchester. Nassau Does everyone County. know what they were talking count- about? Five yeah, but, counties. But the people never realized Mimi Roca, who's supposed to be a serious human being, you know what she was investigating? A kiss on the cheek after the governor said to this woman, may I give you a kiss on the cheek? That's being criminally investigated. Okay, so I, I'm still trying to dig why. Is it because we just heard... Jody Cantor say that you guys had this landmark legislation regarding women's I don't think it was rights. that. I mean, look, even Al Franken, it's like, what? They, look what they did to him. I mean, Yeah, but that was, what they did to him was ridiculous because he was a comedian doing comedic things and that's what he's being, you know, that's what he was being punished for. But I, look, I have no problem telling you in my profession, I was not happy with the legislation that some of the legislation you guys passed about. No, trust how, me, I hear how, it all the time. How easy it became to use the, your legislation as a sword, not as a shield 
shield not to protect women, not to help women, but to use it for them to hurt others. And I think people, I don't think, I know people who I know have said to me, well, Cuomo, by passing those things, he put himself in a different category. Standards were different. All of a sudden, he's supposed to be like a monk or, you know, and, and really not have any, and he was a single man in his 60s. He's not supposed to flirt at all. He's not supposed to say anything inappropriate to a woman in a beekeeper suit because he championed himself as the guy who is here to protect women. And that's what Jody Cantor said on, on the, the morning show. So, what's that term? Hanging, falling on your own petard? I don't, I don't know if it was that. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I think that it just it, it reached a level of insanity, the likes of which you know no one had ever seen. And again, to this day, and the reaction I get to my book when people actually read it and they say, what? That's what this was? And even people who haven't read my, read my book, you know, I think two years removed from everything, everything's calmed down. People look back with a more sober assessment. And I hear constantly from people saying, why did he resign? Why? Nothing ever came of well, those things. Why did he have to go? I know you know why he resigned. So why don't you tell people why he resigned? Because you said you, you're as good as, you guys are as good at counting votes as anyone yeah. else. So tell people why did he resign? No, the, look, the legislature, there's no due process written into the state constitution in New York State. There is no high crimes and misdemeanors like there is federally. And the Assembly had announced publicly that they were intending to impeach. In New York, as soon as you're impeached, you're automatically removed from office. And the Senate had the votes to find him guilty at trial. And for the intellectually dishonest members of the media who to this day say he should have just fought through impeachment if he really believed that he didn't have a problem. Really? I point you to Justice LaSalle who, (laughs) when he went up for his vote, as I'm sure your listeners are well aware, Gary, we covered that extensively. He didn't have due process. His record was completely distorted. Totally distorted. This man who served honorably for decades, dragged through the mud. It was over before he even stepped into the Capitol. And that's what it would have been for the governor. And the governor knew it. Okay, but I'm going to ask you the same question about the New York Times. Why did Andrea Stewart-Cousins and why did Speaker Carl Hasty want Governor Hochul they, I mean, they, as opposed to Andrew Cuomo? Well, they I, knew who they were getting, right? I don't, I don't think it was that simple. Look, especially for Carl, I think that Carl was under so much pressure. Biden goes out. Biden says, I didn't read the report, but he should resign. Believe me. <laughs> and, and he said, I didn't read the report, it's but like, he should resign. A lot, well, a lot of people in Congress said, well, I didn't read Obamacare, but yeah. I voted for it. I'll read it later. Yeah. And once he did that, and the president of the United States says something like that, it creates this it creates this momentum that becomes impossible to withstand. And there were extremist members in the legislature who had wanted Andrew Cuomo out before any of this, having nothing to do with nursing homes, having nothing to do with saying sweetheart or kissing someone on the cheek or putting your hand on someone's waist for a photograph. They wanted him out because they hated him politically. And they but why why did they hate him politically? Well, because pick a reason the far right feared him you know trump was concerned i told you in all of 2020 i get the far right part but the assembly and and the the speaker you know the the assembly and the senate it's not that it's not that simple carl i think was just swept up in the moment he couldn't withstand the pressure because everyone it all of a sudden became the stampede because once biden said it you know allegations against women especially as it relates to the democratic party impossible to withstand so you have the stampede but there was this far fringe alessandra biagi your friend. your friend. If yeah. anybody wants to have a good, a, it's almost like watching a boxing match. I, look, you brought it up. You talk in the book about you wrote her some tweets that or texts that I don't think wasn't the sweetest language. That's <laughs> let's leave it at that. 
Let me ask you a question. If she walked in the room right now and we all left, and it was just the two of you, you and Alexandra Biaggi, what would you have to say to her? Alessandra Biaggi. I have oh. nothing to say to Alessandra Biaggi. I wish her well in Divinity School, which is <laughs> where she currently is after she you know, got crushed in her congressional primary against Sean Patrick Maloney, when for all of her talk about toxic work environment, it turns out she was a bully and she created a toxic and hostile work environment for her employees. So I have nothing to say to Alessandra Biaggi that's not in the book, and I wish her well in Divinity School. You know what's School. crazy is I'm positive Positive. Her grandfather and Mario Cuomo had to go back way back. I mean, her grandfather was a congressman during the period of time. Oh my God, he ran the machine. They right. were, they were ma- machine politicians. I mean, her, her grandfather, you know, famously worked with the mafia to try to stop The Godfather from being filmed in New York. Um, so, I mean, yeah, he was around a long time. You know, he obviously, his career did not end the way that their family would have wanted. She was very sensitive about that. When she was all, when she was all against Columbus, Columbus, I, all I'm saying is her grandfather was rolling over his grave. He was such a proud Italian-American, Mario Biaggi, a storied individual. All right, folks, that's all the time we have for today. I hope you'll tune in tomorrow for the rest of our interview with Melissa DeRosa. The Arthur Idala Power Hour is sponsored by Idala Bertuna and Cammons, P.C. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.